Hello and welcome to Kind Mind. My name's Todd. Thank you for making time to listen today. Hope you can sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. And then reflect and experiment with these ideas and carry the conversation forward. Also, if you're listening on Apple Podcast, five-star rating and a review is very helpful and very much appreciated. Helps the show to continue to grow and reach new people. If you're supporting this work on Patreon, thank you so much. If you'd like to, for as little as $5, it's a pay-what-you-feel model. You get access to everything, including the meditation page on my website and bonus content and access to the Kind Mind gatherings, which are on the last Tuesday of every month where we record these talks, but also have a Q&A session and a guided meditation practice together. So it's nice to have fellowship around curiosity and the meaning of life. There's a couple events that I want to share with you coming up soon. This Sunday, July 31st, I'll be back at Spiritual Speakeasy Community on Zoom. And the topic is the transcendentalism of Ralph Waldo Emerson. So if that sounds interesting to you, you can find the details on the events page of my website at michaeltodfink.com, along with the third annual Kind Mind Campout. That's going to be Saturday, August 6th, just a one-day overnight camping retreat. Space is very limited, and the registration period is about to close, but it's only $100. It's a great opportunity to learn more together and to have more time to get to know each other. It's a beautiful farm where the event takes place in central Illinois. It's about maybe 90 miles or so south of Chicagoland in Gibson City on 160 acres. Beautiful space. We'll be stargazing, cooking over a fire, singing, sound healing, morning yoga before we wrap things up. Check it out if you'd like. And now... Fasting to slow down, today's episode. When you think of living the fast life, that's actually antithetical to the benefits of fasting with food. In the book Scale by physicist Jeffrey West, he compares different systems that are larger and smaller, like and and organisms like a mouse to a human being and to cities and so on. And he draws parallels between the mechanical processes and how there's some commonalities there. So basically, when we talk about anti-aging with fasting, if you think of the digestive system as another system in the universe that has a lifespan, well, every time we're restricting calories, we're preserving some of the functionality of that system. And there are parallels to this with other systems as well that have anti-aging anti-aging benefits, and I'll go into that a little bit more. But also, I make the distinction between fasting from thought. Tech entrepreneur and investor Naval Ravikant calls meditation intermittent fasting for the mind. And then fasting from words, restricting our speech or observing silence, maintaining quiet, and limiting certain behaviors that drain our energy. Since I recorded this talk last year, I've had some other health issues come and go, and I've experimented with ketogenic practices and different variations of low-carb and low-starch to reduce inflammation. And the more I experiment and think about 
the effect of food, the, the more I realize that we have a complicated relationship with grains, and we don't have a really long relationship as a species with grains. If you think about the work to have bread, for instance, it, it wouldn't be very accessible to hunter-gatherers. And also, I continue to learn how interrelated health is to what we eat, how we eat, when we eat, or if we eat. And every human body is so unique. I'm always reluctant to make generalities or, or universal statements about food or diet. So this is more just to inspire further investigation. I think some of our confounding patterns with food and the body, especially when it comes to like injury or disability, we just think that there's no way food really relates to that. But I think that's because the body is not always analogous to other machinery, like a car, for instance. We talk about fueling the body and fueling a car, but if you don't put gasoline in a car, it's not going to immediately begin to lose its mass or diminish in structure. Imagine having your car, running your car on empty, and all of a sudden the windows and uh, shells start to evaporate. Well, that's what it's like with the human being. The, the food is actually our presentation. One of the beautiful transformations that occurs with the genuine proficiency and happy aptness with the practice of fasting from food is that food becomes one less craving. And here I'm using craving as non-identical with hunger. Hunger is a signal in the body. We can know that message, listen to it, but ultimately encounter it with equanimity. And then with our intentionality, decide how we want to use that or respond to that, thereby maintaining a sense of calm and balance. And when we examine the etymology of the English word itself fast, whether you're talking about adjective, noun, or verb, it has roots in Dutch, vast, and German, fest. I like these two concepts, vast. When we fast, we actually do reduce our mass thereby disconnecting us to some extent from the strong attachment or identification with the physical form, and therefore our sense of being expands. So there is a vastness that is spontaneous with the spiritual practice of fasting. And now ordinarily a fast indicates celebration, which usually means more eating and drinking. So it's ironic to think of this evolving from that German word, but ordinarily our attention is drawn outward. We tend to be extrovert. We get so engrossed with the objects of the senses that we miss paying attention to that which reveals all the objects, which is the light. When fasting from ingesting the extrovert world, when you pair that 
with introspection, the inner world opens up and that becomes its own festival because there's so much to explore and celebrate, so much inner magic. This goes back even further etymologically to Sanskrit and pastyam, dwelling place. With the stillness that is revealed from the practice of meditation or self-discipline with food or with speech, we get a sense of who we truly are and how we belong to the whole. That our dwelling place is not just in this form or in this place, but in the heart of the universe. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and just a heads up, in the Q&A portion in the latter half of this, we didn't get good audio capture of some of the questions, but we still left in the answers, because it's pretty easy to infer what the question was, but if it sounds a little disjointed at times, that's why. As always, I look forward to connecting soon. Please be well, my friend. Thank you. This theme tonight, fasting, reminds me of this story that I think I've probably shared with you before, some of you. It's about a hungry fox wandering in the forest, and he comes to a tall fence, tall wall, and he starts to follow along this big wall to see where it leads. And he ends up back where he started, so he realizes it's a giant circle, and he becomes very curious what might be inside. He finds a little hole and he can peer through this hole and inside he sees a magnificent garden filled with beautiful flowers and fruits like grapes, some delicious items for this hungry fox. He tries to enter into the garden but he can't quite fit through the small hole in the wall. So he decides he'll fast until he can squeeze through. So for three days, the fox waits and he gets a little smaller, a little smaller, tries again. After the third day, he can fit and he squeezes through and then he starts to gorge himself on all the delicious fruits and it's like a paradise for him. He's eating and sleeping and laying on his back enjoying the atmosphere, the ambience, and the beautiful scents in this garden. Then after some days, he hears some voices, and he realizes he's being hunted by the farmer, by the owner of the garden. So he, he needs to make his escape. When he goes back to the hole, of course he can't fit out of the hole because he's gained so much weight from <laughs> gorging on the grapes in the, in the garden. So once again, he has to fast for a little bit longer than the first time. And this, this experience, it's much more painful because he's surrounded by all the tempting fruits. And after this painful experience of restricting, he's able to once again fit through the hole and narrowly escape his demise. And when he's back into his original place, it really gives him pause. And he thinks about his desires and how he narrowly escaped death 
and thinks, life, you're too much for me sometimes. This little story introduces this concept pretty well because we have oftentimes a complicated relationship with food, which are the building blocks of our body, right? And we also have complicated relationships with our body, sometimes depending on the experiences that we've had, pain that we've been through, any trauma like abandonment, like shame, like betrayal. It can all affect the way we feel and take care of our body. So fasting is one of the most ancient mechanisms for healing and spiritual transformation. You can find descriptions and prescriptions for it in the Vedas, in the Himalayan scriptures of India, in the Taoist texts of China, definitely in yoga philosophy. Most of my experience with the practice of fasting is in the context of yoga and meditation, which I learned in India. But in the case of the fox, he is fasting twice in the story. But both fasts are not the same from his mental standpoint. Similarly, somebody starving themselves or unable to have access to food, let's say a poor person or homeless person, would not necessarily be fasting in the sense of the practice or the discipline of fasting. That's a person that's hungry, that's starving, that is in need of compassion and service and help. So we're going to explore the state of mind that's involved with fasting. And we'll talk a little bit about the kinds of fast and, and how it can help us if we approach it in the right way. You may also be familiar with the story of Siddhartha who became the Buddha and his long fast before his enlightenment. It's a common theme in the stories of avatars or spiritual masters, oftentimes 40 days, like Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days, the Buddha fasted and meditated under a tree for 40 days. But in his experience, he was going deeper into his noble truths. And when he realized that desire is the cause of suffering and the reason why we're born and the momentum of karma, he logically felt that he could break out of this cycle by stopping his eating. Because if he gave up his desire for food, that would essentially be renouncing the path of reincarnation. However, just dying is not going to lead somebody into awakening. So his meditation and his strength waned during this period until he was approaching death and he was not about to enter into enlightenment just from dying. And fortunately, as the story goes, the young girl Sujata brought some porridge to the Buddha and he ate it and survived and slowly regained his health and then found that with just enough strength, he could continue penetrating the veil of illusion. And then he entered into samadhi or enlightenment or nirvana in the case of Buddhism. And after his realization, he wasn't prescribing that kind of starvation or that extreme asceticism to his disciples. This has become known in Buddhism as the middle way. So I think that's important also because people 
sometimes mistake fasting, which is the means to transformation, they mistake it for the end in itself. And you have many people in different traditions that get so obsessed with fasting, they're trying to become masters of fasting, and in the end it doesn't really do any good for helping them to develop spiritually. So why fast? In yogic philosophy and Vedic philosophy, there is a description of three gunas, G-U-N-A-S. These gunas represent the triple qualities of nature. One is Raja, one is Tama, and one is Sattva. The Raja is the active part of life, the dynamic part, and it applies to all features of life and nature and the universe. So inside of the human being, the Rajasic part is when we are restless, anxious, worried, full of thoughts, extroverted, active. Now, it's not a bad thing because it can accomplish a lot in life, but to only be in this mode would have its limitations, right? And so the second one is Tama. The Tamasic quality is the opposite of the Rajasic quality. This is dullness laziness, tiredness, sleepiness. It's reflected in the night, the lower energy state at night. And then there's a third quality called sattva. The sattvic quality of the human being is beyond those two. It's a peaceful, calm state of mind and when the energy in the body is calm. In nature, these three qualities are represented as day, night, and then the junctures between day and night. So sunset would be a sattvic moment. It actually gets quiet. There's a sense of calmness. The sunset is beautiful and the same with dawn. Before all the activity of the day, there's this peaceful transition. And inside of the human being, you can test in yogic practice which state of mind you're in by checking which nostril has more air flowing. So if you checked, Probably the right or left side is flowing more easily. For me, it's slightly clearer on the right because I'm speaking. Before, it was flowing evenly through both. When it's flowing evenly through both, you're in the sattvic state of mind. If you observe this through mindfulness throughout the day, you'll find that it goes from right to left and back and forth your mood follows it. So you may feel a little bit more difficulty concentrating when it's more on the left side or when you're ready to go to sleep. And when you're feeling a little more active or restless, you'll notice it's on the right side. Through alternate nostril breathing, you can bring some balance to it or simply tilting the head. When I tilt my head to the left, it opens up this channel more and can bring more rajasic quality to my mind. Or if I turn my head to the left, it opens the left channel which can calm my mind just by moving your head in that way calmly. So the idea of fasting for the yogis was to cultivate the sattvic state of mind, which is the ideal conditions for penetrating into the reality, for accessing the truth. The word fasting in its oldest iteration in Sanskrit is upavasta. Vasta comes from the word vasati, which meant a few things, including waiting, 
So you could kind of understand how there's waiting involved with fasting, you're waiting to eat. But more appropriately, that word means abiding. Abiding in awareness. And upa means to go closer to. So fasting brings you closer to being, to pure being, as opposed to identification with the body and doing stuff. Because we're not human doings, we're human beings. But by breaking our habit with food temporarily, that connection or that attachment to identity to the body loosens. And a person can spontaneously feel closer to the open awareness or to this spiritual quality. In yogic traditions, practitioners fast at least a couple times a month on a particular night of the lunar calendar, because in the East they followed the lunar calendar, which is really beautiful because just by looking up at the night sky, you know what day it is. Obviously, the moon has this 28-day cycle. From new moon to new moon or full moon to full moon, you know a month has passed. And how beautiful is that? We have our clocks and our phones and all that to know the day, but in the ancient past, you just simply followed the phases of the moon and you knew what cycle you were in. So there's a practice of fasting in the East on a particular night of the moon called Ekadashi. Eka means one, dashi means ten. It means the eleventh moon. Eleven moons after the full moon, people fast. And eleven nights after the new moon, people fast. And they fast from moonrise to moonrise. It's thought in those ancient cultures that because the body is 75-80% water and we see how the moon affects the oceans and the earth is 70-80% water, that there's an effect on the mind and that this day would be the ideal day to have the mental capacity to abstain from food. So there's different kinds of fasts that people could do. It's not that you have to abstain entirely, it all depends on the person. But to reduce one's intake would be the practice on Ekadashi. If you are more in tune with the body through mindfulness, you'll find that there's a few days, two or three days, every 48 days or so, where your body doesn't request food. You already know it, you just probably haven't seen the pattern of it. But you know some days, appetite's low. It's not a big deal. It happens once in a while and it, and it goes and people just eat anyway because we're so conditioned with the three meals. But if you think about evolution, how could our ancestors for millions of years have sat down for three meals a day? It's not like hunter-gatherers start out with coffee and, and avocado toast and cereal <laughs> before they go do the work of actually getting the food. The work is getting the food to eat, right? So it's not likely that our ancestors ate three times a day. And it's not likely that our bodies are built to digest three meals a day, especially with how much more we have to sit as modern human beings. Anyway, that's Ekadashi. It was established in the Vedic culture because people didn't know when these days were. So they just picked the most ideal day that could fit the most people. So I've practiced this throughout my meditative life for the past 20 years. Before that, I would just fast one day a week. 
on Fridays. I just would go most of the day, sometimes the whole day. Sometimes I would have like some juice or a smoothie in the evening. So what I want to emphasize here is that fasting will not benefit you if it's miserable. Similarly, scientists have recognized that exercising in a way that makes you dread it has its counter effect that cancels out the benefits of, of the exercise. Finding activity that you look forward to, that's joyful, walking in nature, playing a sport that you love, has much longer-term benefits. There are four benefits that I want to highlight from fasting from food. So we'll talk first about food. The first one is social. There's a social wellness that comes from some amount of fasting. Social means our relationship to others. By reducing our intake, even if it's just reducing food and, and just having juice that day, or just missing one meal, it can cultivate compassion in the person because now you have a deeper sense of what it feels like to be hungry and to go without. And to see that that's the condition of so many millions of people or billions of people on the planet can enhance our relationship to life and to nature. So the, the first benefit is outside of the body. The second benefit is physical. By reducing our food intake, we can access a host of health benefits. First one is healing. Now it's much more understood through the study of intermittent fasting and the study of caloric restriction in mice, for instance, that there are significant anti-aging properties associated with intelligent caloric restriction. And I've learned a lot about this and its connection to spiritual practice in this book, which I'll show you here, called The Tao of Health, Sex, and Longevity. It's like an encyclopedia of wisdom on dieting, fasting, nutrition, food combinations, and so on. And in this book, and also in reports that I've read from Harvard Health, between about 36 and 72 hours of no food intake, your body will enter into what's known as autophagy. Autophagy is a Greek word that literally means self-eating. But what this means in the medical sense is that the body will start to draw energy from stored fat. So a person will start to lose weight during that time. This is one of the reasons why we gain weight also is because in between our meals, people snack. There are some people that even believe or need to, depending on their constitution and their digestive systems and their metabolism, that it's better to be eating all day or grazing all day. But that isn't compatible with the knowledge of how energy is stored and used and how sugars are processed in the body. So after the 36 to 72 hour period and the body entering into autophagy, now you can begin to detox. So the body understands that it doesn't have to be using the majority of its energy to break down food. So digestion uses up so much of our energy. And this is the concept in the East of conservation of energy, that we lose so much energy or we use up so much life force to process food. And 
by entering into autophagy, scientists have shown that it can really reverse a lot of health conditions. And the logic here is simply that we don't have enough energy for the immune system to deal with some of the conditions that people have. And when you free up that energy in the body, it can go towards immune functioning. So there's a detox process that happens in this autophagy as well. The cells start to eliminate more waste and cells that are not functioning as well are also replaced. So this is where the anti-aging comes in and why mice have been able to live longer when they're put into intermittent fasting experiments or different kinds of caloric restriction experiments. And the same seems to be true for human beings. Somebody was asking me today what I thought were some of the methods of longevity and anti-aging. I think fasting has a big part of this. Although I don't fast to live longer, I fast to redirect the energy. But that's how the healing can work. So when we're regenerating our cells in that way, then this can really extend the life of the human being. It can improve the organ of the skin. It can help to detox and cleanse the colon and other systems in the body. So that's a little bit about physical benefit. We can come back to that in the question and answer section. Then the third benefit is in the mind. So it's thought in yoga philosophy that food builds the body. The most dense part or the grossest part of the food is passed through the body as waste. A subtler part of the food actually becomes our body and the most subtle part of the food becomes our mind. So when you are restricting the food, it helps a person to be able to perceive their thoughts better, have more awareness. So whereas the three meals a day actually anchor us more into our body, if you fast with the right attitude, you will immediately start to feel a lightness in your being. You'll feel a little bit less confined to the body. You may even feel, if you practice meditation, you may even feel some of the vibratory nature of our life, like the circulatory system, the nervous system. You'll be able to hear better, you'll be able to see better, you'll be able to smell better, but it will improve the quality of thought. So here's an important part of this when it comes to the mind. I do not recommend that people fast and continue to push on with your fast through frustration and irritability. Your fast ought to be peaceful and enjoyable. Your body will tell you how much it can take. Fasting, like the Buddha taught, is not a punishment for the body. It ought to be a joy in the sense that you're lightening the workload of your system. It's like letting the body go on vacation. We sometimes go on vacation and we take our work with us and it's not really relaxing, it's tense. So to do the fast and to just force yourself through it, even though the mind is craving food, the body's aching, or you're getting a headache or you're feeling ill, that's not the point of this. So if that's your experience, you have to start smaller. You may even want to start just by making the meal a little bit smaller or just skipping one meal and doing the intermittent fasting or just having some juices or just having non-solid intake. 
until you can gradually grow that feeling, the feeling of lightness. Last week I did a two-day fast and the entire 48 hours was enjoyable, was peaceful. I felt happy, I felt clear, and that's the mental benefit, that your mind is less dull. So you can break out of that cycle of Raja and Tama, and your mind can enter into what's called the Sattvic state, which is a calm, peaceful, tranquil condition. And it's ideal for penetrating deeper into the truth of who we are. In a spiritual sense, these fasts should be paired with the right kind of activity. You don't want to be too active and you don't want to be too inactive because you'll miss the opportunity to enter into the state of mind that I'm talking about. So don't just sleep through your fast and think that you're achieving some mental discipline in that way. But when we do this properly, yes, the mind will become more disciplined it will translate to being able to be peaceful in different circumstances where you have to abstain. So like this whole time during the pandemic, we've had to go without many things. But from decades of practicing fasting of different kinds, and I'll come to the other kinds of fasting shortly here, it's just been kind of like a, a long semi-retreat for me where I go to work and I come home because I've experimented with longer fast, several day fast, and learning how to be joyful in those experiences has prepared my mind for limitation. So that's the, the longer term benefit of the mind. Then the last one is spiritual. So if you want your fast not to just be for health, for medical, if you want it to be for spiritual transformation, then it's wise to prepare this time for meditation. Meditation could mean sitting, in nature, sitting in a quiet space in your home or in your room. Meditate, reflect, write, journal, study the scriptures or study mystic poetry or study the lives of spiritual people and how they lived and what they did and what their experiences were with different kinds of spiritual disciplines so that your mind naturally wants to go deeper, wants to go further. Again, this is about not being consumed with desire because you're going without food, but you're trying to access tranquility. In the Vedas, in the yogic philosophy, they talk about five sheaths or koshas that cover the body. The outermost one is called anamaya kosha. Ana means food or anam is food. Maya is illusion and kosha is sheath. The first illusion of our identity is that we're a body. And the reason why it's an illusion is because every seven to 10 years, we have a totally different atomic structure. And yet we continue to believe that we are only the body. So that can't be the entire truth of our existence. Otherwise, where did we go when the other versions of ourself moved on. When all those atoms have passed and we're still here, that must mean there's, there's something subtler. So that's the first sheath and that's the spiritual benefit that you can start to see through that illusion. And like I said before, this is kind of experienced as a lightness of being. There are two other kinds of fasting that I would like to touch on before we open it up to questions. So you can fast from food one of the other words for food in Sanskrit is ahara. 
And the beauty of ahara means anything that you take in through the five senses or through the organs of the body. What I look at would also be ahara. What I listen to would be ahara. What I smell, eat, consume in any way is all ahara. So that means that we could fast from any of those things. But I'm just going to touch on two more. The next one would be a fast for the mind, which is going without talking. Observing silence is another form of fasting in Eastern spiritual traditions. And just like fasting with food, you don't want to punish yourself with this. It ought to be a joyful experience to have a break from speaking. So just as so much energy is used, the physical energy is used to digest the food, a subtler energy in Chinese philosophy is sometimes referred to as qi, and in the Indian philosophy it's sometimes referred to as prana. This subtle life energy is used up by speaking. It takes a lot out of us to talk. You sometimes hear people who have jobs of speaking, like radio host will sometimes fall ill, they'll lose their voice or experience fatigue and exhaustion because so much of the life force is going out in that way. So the point of these kinds of fasts is to conserve the energy, to conserve the prana. To prepare yourself for this kind of fast, again, know yourself. If you've never gone without speaking, then you have to start small. Maybe pick a time of day where you observe silence or spend some quiet time in nature or in your home. Choose a day ahead of time so that you can plan, so that you can prepare. If you need to inform people, you can do so ahead of time. When you enter into this experience, it's not just about not speaking. It's also about not communicating. So to be observing silence and to spend that whole time texting and emailing people would not get the mental benefit. In this experience, you want to detach from that kind of connectivity. You want to unplug entirely so that you can see, you can observe how the mind talks and where thoughts come from. Many of us struggle with our speech, we'll struggle with finding the right words and being able to communicate our ideas. Many times we regret what we say. And through the observation of silence, I was able to improve my ability to be kinder, more truthful, more honest, more loving with my language. I met a monk when I was in India who was known as Moni Baba. In Sanskrit, Mona means silence, and it comes from the word Muni, which is a person of wisdom. And Moni is one who observes silence. Moni Baba, when I met him, had just observed silence for 12 years. It's a long austerity for some monks. He had just come out of his 12-year fast from speaking. And in the Yoga Sutras, there is a chapter about the glories of yoga. One is that if you can complete a 12-year fast from speech, that you can manifest things with your words. You have more power over nature. But anyways, 
as to mythology, he was a very beautiful person. And when he even greeted you, it felt like there was a kind of warmth and loving energy in his words and his smile radiated so much goodness and so much kindness. I felt like this man could communicate so much with his eyes and with his smile because he had such a long period without language. Something like that was just so unfamiliar to me, you know, that somebody would spend that long period of time without communicating, without speaking. So anyways, that is fasting for the mind. You can start small and you can gradually grow it. You can learn about people who really made this part of their life. Gandhi, for instance, didn't speak on Mondays throughout his life. And it's interesting because they don't talk about it much in biographies. I don't think they portrayed that in the film Gandhi. But in footage of Gandhi, if, if it's a Monday, you may see him, if he has his same work, you may see him writing a note to people because he's observing silence. I think it's important when you're observing silence or when you're fasting not to make a big deal about it with other people. If no one else needs to know, that's even better because it's a very personal decision. It's about oneness and finding unity with nature, not creating drama between you and family or other people. So if you can do this without disrupting the lives of others, that's ideal. And if part of your fast is at work, try not to draw attention to it at work when lunch comes up or when it could impact other people. If you want to talk about it, that's fine, or talk about the benefits of fasting. If that comes up, that's fine. But you don't want your energy to be extroverted during the periods of fasting. And then the last one is fasting or abstaining from sexual activity. This energy is even more subtle. It's known as virya in Sanskrit. Virya means like the life force or the most vital energy. Sometimes it's used to describe the human seed or sperm. In Taoism, it's called Jing. And so this is another example of how the life force is depleted in the human being when they're too sexually active or even just too much desiring of sexual activity. It's just like desire for food or desire for speaking. It drains and depletes the life force. This doesn't mean that sexual activity is bad, just like eating food is not bad. It just means when you live to eat, for instance, you're more likely to be unhealthy. You're more likely to have a contentious relationship with food and the body. And when you eat to live, and eating is more incidental than the point of life. It's like, I have to eat to sustain this body, to take care of this body, so that I can do the work that I'm here to do, live my purpose. When sexual activity is like that, when you observe nature, animals often have their cycles with sexual activity and human beings do not. They just, you know, for the most part, have no pattern, no rhyme or reason to it. But if we can take time once in a while to abstain briefly, even from too much intimacy, then we can redirect that energy towards awakening. And it's thought in yoga tradition that this is part of what some people describe as the kundalini arising, which is just a metaphor for dormant energy in the body. They call it the serpent power, which simply means that a snake is coiled up and hibernating or brumating, and then at the right time it comes out. 
so it's thought in yogic cultures that there is so much human potential that it's either lost through overspeaking, over sexualizing life, overeating, that through some of these simple practices can be channeled upward into awakening. So I offer these three examples of fasting and I invite you to create your own what's called in the East sadhana. Sadhana comes from the root word sat, which means truth, and the tana is the practice, the path. Each seeker has to decide for themselves, what is my methodology going to be? Now, my teacher is very adept at fasting in all of these different ways. He's a monk, he's celibate, he is currently silent since the start of the pandemic. I have been around him before when he was in the middle of multi-year fasts from speaking. One time he was incognito because wherever he goes, people find out and they try to come see him because he's a great master and people come to him for healing and they ask for all different kinds of things. That's overwhelming sometimes. So for a few years, he was in seclusion and solitude and not speaking. But he arrived in Illinois one night. Nobody knew. He somehow came to the United States, took a cab to the Temple of Harmony in Joliet. And I was there that night. And I was the only one. I saw him. He came silently. So I sat with him that night. He was observing silence. And he taught me a lot about how to slowly go deeper and deeper into some of these austerities and how to derive the spiritual benefits without getting attached to the practice itself. I'll share with you one more story about silence. There were four monks observing silence overnight. And it was around this time because in India, many people celebrate a holiday called Mahashivaratri. And they observe this festival with an all-night vigil, a candlelight vigil, and a fast. So these four monks are keeping silent with a candlelight vigil. Some hours into the night, the candle goes out. And the first monk says, hey, the light went out. He whispers that. Second monk says, aren't we supposed to be observing silence? Aren't we supposed to not talk? Third monk says, why can't you two keep your silence? <laughs> the last monk says, ha, I'm the only one who could stay silent. <laughs> <laughs> and the point of this story is, first monk broke his fast because distraction from the world or temptation by what's going on externally. Second monk lost his balance because he was too concerned with the rules. Aren't we supposed to be not talking? Third monk lost his practice because of anger. He was frustrated what the other two were doing. And the fourth monk broke his fast because of pride. So the message here to conclude this part is that you'll see in some traditions I've seen in India, people fast forever. And there are different kinds of ahimsa, which is nonviolence with food. So some traditions like the Jains, Jainism, there's many foods they won't eat because of their core value of nonviolence. 
they won't eat food that grows underground, the strict genes, because to get the potato, you have to kill the ecosystem around it. They'll only eat the fruit that falls from the tree. So like this, many of them are in long fast. Some people in these spiritual traditions are more concerned with the fasting than the awakening. Anyways, build your own sadhana. Find what feels right to you. Do it joyfully. Observe a little silence or observe a little fasting from food or observe a little bit of celibacy in your relationships so that when you come back together, you feel even more loving, more grateful, more present with your partner. Allow this to be upavasta, which means to go up towards pure awareness, less attachment, less identification with the false self. The autophagy state is supposed to be good for many different conditions. Some scientists are writing interesting papers about its effect on cancer, but it's also been shown to be able to improve or reverse conditions like arthritis and uh, other metabolic and digestive conditions. I'm not an expert, so I want to put the disclaimer that that's not meant to be a cure for anything, but it's worth talking with your provider about or studying more if you're struggling with, with different health conditions. I personally have found it to be the case for me throughout life with different illnesses or conditions. You'll see in the animal world, and you may have seen this in your pets, that when they're sick, also before they die, they start to fast or they find a place to retreat to and find solitude. And sometimes they get well after fasting. So animals instinctively know that if they're sick, the first thing they ought to do is begin the detox process by fasting from food. That's programmed into them but it's very difficult for humans. I think this is really hard for humans also because of the amount of work it required for us to obtain food as hunter-gatherers. If we didn't have strong desire for food, it would have been too difficult to meet the requirements in nature, in the wild. Now that it's very easy to get food, you just go to the store or you just go to your phone and it arrives, that can be a dangerous thing because the desire for it, the propulsion to have food is still very strong from our ancestors, but modern life has changed so rapidly, there's not time for evolution to adapt a nuanced response to the environment and our relationship to food. A couple other quotes that you may find interesting though. One about silence from Rumi, the quieter you become, the more you are able to hear. And I said before that if you observe silence, you will hear more. You may even hear internal processes in your body that you've never heard before. Francis Bacon said, silence is the sleep that nourishes wisdom. And my guru said, all speech is a friction, meaning that the moment we speak, we're creating ripples in the ether and all possibility of conflict arises from the speech. His Master said that the tongue is more powerful than the revolver because the bullet pierces you once, but the word can pierce your heart again and again and again, pierce the other person's heart. You can't take the word back. So we got a couple things in the chat box. When I was at a retreat, mauna, that's the word for silence, was observed by some of the students. I was aware that it became a point of frustration for many. There's more to learn about abstaining from speaking for me chatty mind. 
Naturally, it becomes frustrating. You'll naturally become irritable. It just stretches. Just like if you're working out or exercising, naturally you'll hit a point that's too much. If you're trying to lift weights, you'll naturally fatigue. The muscles will fatigue. That's as much as you can do. But if you're really kind with yourself and you take care of yourself, you'll be able to grow that. Just like you can grow your muscular strength, you can grow your endurance with physical activity through steady practice. And this one, I have a private message here. No, when I was fasting weekly, I don't think I was entering into autophagy or ketosis. I really wasn't even knowledgeable of that at the time. I was a much younger man. It was mostly just for self-discipline. And I wasn't too rigid about making sure it was exactly 24 hours or anything like that. You just start by skipping the first two meals and then maybe I would have something light in the evening if I was too weak or too frustrated. In time with the Ekadashi practice, that I believe I would enter into a detox state because I would sometimes go 36 to 72 hours and I could feel the difference. After that, about 72 hours, you will feel as if you're ill, most likely, and that is the waste proteins or the cells discharge entering into the bloodstream. So it can actually feel like you have maybe like a little bit of flu-like symptoms. That may require some careful monitoring if you extend beyond that. This is probably something that is more important to health for people that you know, maybe do not have a plant-based diet. I would encourage people to experiment more with plant-based eating. No, don't be afraid of that, meaning I'm asking you to not have any meat or animal products. Plant-based to me means that's the foundation. Like I'm Illinois-based, but at any given time, I could be in New Mexico. <laughs> so I go there a lot, but this is where I'm based. So the basis of our diet and nutrition ought to be fresh plants because they are closer to the source of the energy of our solar system, which is the sun. Through photosynthesis, the plant grows and then the animals eat the plants. So we're a little bit farther removed from the pure source, which is why the benefits of chlorophyll in human beings and like phytonutrients and spirulina and things like that. So I would encourage you to make that more the foundation of your diet. And so like if you have a heavier diet, which would be more like a tamasic diet, lots of fried foods, lots of heavier meats, heavier proteins, that's a lot of work for the body. You would, you would definitely benefit from cleansing the heaviness involved with processing all of that. The Buddhists practice intermittent fasting since the time of the Buddha. And their, their practice was nothing after lunch. So it's kind of a little different than modern people practice. I usually don't eat until lunchtime. So 12, 14 hours every day, even if I'm not in a fast or it's not a kadashi, I just wait till lunch. But their practice was have food only in the morning. And this required more discipline because you're awake that whole time in the afternoon. So they had more discipline of mind. It was another kind of fasting slash austerity for the Buddhist because they often had a begging bowl. Another practice was simply if they were given food or whatever they were given up to seven houses, nothing beyond that, or seven homes in a village. A lot of different ways this was 
taken up by spiritual traditions. Any other thoughts or questions? I have no question. Hi, Ted. Thank you for sharing and doing this. It's great. Nice to see you. I fast from certain foods. Like, I'll give up, like, sugar. It's just very addictive for me. Like, I, I like dark chocolate, but I would, you know, rather have honey or something like that. So what is the your opinion of the benefit of, you know, I have fruit. Yeah, so, like, Harvard Health suggests when you're trying to experiment in a safe and healthy way with intermittent fasting that to gradually build up to that, you want to avoid sugars and refined grains. Try to practice letting your body burn fat between meals. So if you're snacking on carbs between meals, then you're not giving your body the chance to use the stored fat. And avoid snacking at the end of the day and avoid snacking in night. So that would be a good place to improve one's practice. Stop meals and snacking by seven? Yeah, sure, by, by nighttime. Not that you can, you never have that, just when you're building up to this practice, but it's a healthier habit not to eat late. It disrupts sleep. When your body's horizontal and processing food, it's not ideal. Studies have shown that digestion and metabolic processes are most effective at the peak sunlight because the light helps with digestion and the vitamin D. So middle of the night and being horizontal when our systems are off-duty makes it really hard. It contributes to weight gain. It interrupts our sleep. It affects our dreams and so on. So the better we can get, and that takes practice if it's not something that you're used to. You just slowly build up to that, you know, inch that time earlier in the day and do it peacefully. Any of these things that you try or practice, make sure that you're being kind with your body because if you're forceful, then you won't achieve the benefits and it won't be sustainable. It's the same with crash diets. Yes, it may accomplish something in the short term, but people won't be able to sustain it. So longer term, especially because the stomach shrinks from fasting. If you then gorge yourself afterwards, which I've done in my experiments, and that was hard on my body. So the idea here is not to forcefully hold back from something and then explode, but to find the peaceful amount of time that we can abstain from something. And again, it is all about peace. The whole point of this talk tonight is cultivating inner peace and world peace because our diet contributes or affects the peace picture in the world. Our food comes from somewhere, it's produced from somewhere by certain people in a certain manner. And even skipping one meal could tune us to the poor, can tune us to the way we treat animals and the environment and how nature has to give so much to sustain us. So when we're practicing fasting, it ought to be done peacefully. So a couple other questions here. What about seasonal reset? Definitely, I, I think your body probably naturally communicates different needs in different seasons, right? And to some extent, nature cooperates with us. Like if you think of what grows in Florida, the melons that grow and the citrus that grow in Florida, the humidity in Florida makes it like you're sweating when it's 70 degrees out, right? It's so different from our climate. And 
the vegetation there is providing for that, right? Here in the winter, we can have potatoes and soups and different kinds of food that supports us through, through the winter. And we ought to adapt a little bit or adjust a little bit to the seasons. There are some people who practice very strict diets of not eating beyond 100 miles of where they live. I've met with some of those people. They have an interesting philosophy, but they believe that our bodies are most suitable to the food within the region. And, and sometimes they have to prepare that ahead of time to store it for winter, but still comes from, from the region. Now you think about how modern people eat, and we can have bacon and eggs for breakfast and Indian food for lunch and Thai for dinner. I mean, I don't think doing that every day, three meals a day and fast food and so on is going to be healthy long-term. Those ought to be more of the exceptions rather than the norm, you know, having foundations for our health and for our nutrition, and then gradually shifting that throughout the seasons and finding the right time for us to reset, like with a cleanse. Maybe that happens at a certain time of year. It depends on your life, your routine, and what's possible for you. I mean, I've been slowly trying to build a life where the winter is a time of more fasting, more meditation, more silence, more solitude. And that just coincides with the activities of my work and my previous travel in the summer and performance. And it's just a very extrovert lifestyle for me for six months out of the year for the last 15 years. It's different now in the pandemic, but my body just demanded reset by the time winter came. So depending on, on your way of life, you can build those type of seasonal changes. For health purposes, most plant-based doctors recommend three hours between each meal and 12 to 14 hours between dinner and breakfast. Larger meals early and lighten the meals as the day goes on. Everybody's body's a little bit different, so just listen to your body and work with providers and your doctors to see if that works for you. We process so many words each day. Quarantine maybe made that even worse. Text, phone calls, maybe silence is a relief. I think when you experiment with this, you'll notice the relief that it is and the attachment to speaking, even the addiction to speaking. I mean, some people cannot go without there being sound, right? Like silence is really awkward for people. We call it awkward silence because we're so unfamiliar with it or we need white noise or background noise all the time. And that's what you get to explore with this practice. What is it about needing sound or needing to talk or needing to grab the phone or needing to text somebody? Because it's not that contact with others cures loneliness. Contact with reality cures loneliness. 